As an educator, are you designing experiences that cultivate social and emotional learning? In your classroom and school communities, you can develop social and emotional learning through an environment where students feel safe, welcomed, cared for, and able to take risks. Hapara Highlights and Hapara Filter are two tools that help you create a safe, supportive environment while building student agency. To learn more about establishing a culture of social and emotional learning with Hapara tools, visit hapara.com sel. Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm a reporter and the managing editor here at Ed Surge. I actually have a little bit of a cold this week, so my voice sounds a little bit different, but it is not COVID, I'm happy to say. Many classroom environments favor a certain kind of thinker. Usually, the students who are quickest to recall a fact when the instructor asks a question. But that's not the only type of mind. And it's not even always the best kind of mind for learning. In fact, uh, research has shown that shy learners, the ones who sit in the back and they don't really say anything, they can be slower learners, but they're actually the most flexible and they can be the most creative of uh, problem solvers. That's Barbara Oakley, a professor of engineering at Oakland University, who works at translating the latest brain research into helping people better learn. She even has a book that she co-authored on the topic called Uncommon Sense Teaching, Practical Insights in Brain Science to Help Students Learn. And she argues that teachers should think hard about the diversity of thinking styles that they have in their classrooms. And she even has some tips on how to make adjustments for it. And even if you're not a teacher, it's actually just good advice for understanding how those around you might see the world differently. Barbara Oakley is our guest today. It's worth noting she's also a popular teacher online. Her open online course called Learning How to Learn has been taken by millions of people over the years. And she's also part of a team turning her latest book into a series of online classes as well. She's been on the Ed Surge podcast before, actually, talking about the power of online teaching. But this time, we're digging into this issue of reaching all the different minds in a class, in whatever teaching format's used. I started by asking why she thinks this issue should be part of conversations about making teaching more inclusive, in all kinds of ways. A very, very important issue related to inclusivity is when students learn in very different ways. For example, 7% of, of all American students have dyslexia, and uh, a considerably larger proportion have subclinical dyslexia. So 7% have a diagnosed dyslexia and more might have something like it. Okay. Exactly right. So what this means is if you're teaching math with a bunch of word problems, you're automatically excluding those with dyslexia, making it far harder for them to learn. So it's considerations such as this and such as the idea that some people need a lot more practice. Like me, I have a lesser capacity working memory. And so I need more practice in my learning, but I can learn just as well as someone with a higher capacity working memory. I'm just slower at that learning. But interestingly, we often say, oh, if you learn faster, you're smarter. And that may be the case according to the, you know, the way they define IQ. But as it turns out, 
those who are smarter are often less accurate in their learning and less flexible with what they've learned. So this is why Santiago Ramon y Cajal, the, the father of modern neuroscience who won the Nobel Prize, despite the fact that he was a lousy learner and really struggled to try and get into his brain what he was trying to master or assimilate. And, but he said, I was no genius and he was not a genius, but he said, I have worked with many geniuses. And the problem with geniuses is they're really smart. They tend to jump to conclusions. And when they think they've got something, they are inflexible. They can't change their mind about what they've concluded. And so that means that, you know, you're kind of stuck. And if their hypothesis is wrong, they'll use their intellect to justify why they must have been right after all, mm. instead of changing their hypothesis in light of the facts. Right. Oh, wow. So um, I'm interested in this idea that learning the person who raises their hand fastest in a classroom, say um, they do get the answer fastest, but that's not the, that's not necessarily the best learner, so to speak. In fact, uh, research has shown that shy learners, the ones who sit in the back and they don't really say anything, they can be slower learners, but they're actually the most flexible and they can be the most creative of uh, problem solvers. So there really are, it's not just, I mean, there's actually neuroscience that shows why this is taking place. Why? Yeah. How does that work? Well, some people, so you have a differing bath of neurochemicals depending on your, you know, like your genetic underpinnings and also the environmental influences that influence, you know, how your genetics unfold. So some people have a bath of neurochemicals that at night when they go to sleep, they've got these little spikes that grow on their neurons. These are called dendritic spines. And this, sure. these spikes are what hook into other neurons. So we're making a web through those spikes of dendritic spines. Well, in slower learners, what can happen is those slower learners, those spikes wash away, especially at night. Those are the people like me who go, oh, I wish I could remember that more easily. And then you, you, you go to, you, you think you've got it in mind, you go to sleep and you wake up in the morning and it's all gone or most of it's erased and you got to kind of relearn it. But this relearning actually means that you're flexibly adjusting your thinking. Someone who has a differing bath of neurochemicals, those spikes once they grow into place, they don't fall away very easily. You remember it all the next day. You've got this great memory, but you, you're like stuck in your memory. It's kind of like a, a photograph as opposed to a painting. You know, a painting, you can kind of revise and kind of, but a painting, whatever, a, a picture or, or a photograph, whatever you've got, that's what you've got. And it's, it's really harder to change what you've got. Oh, that's so interesting. And you also talk about a difference between like a hiker and a race car driver as far as learning speed. And, and that's really true. You can see that if someone's dendritic spines remain in place more easily, they can hold on to that information and they can learn more quickly. 
but they're just not as flexible in what they're learning. Not necessarily. There are always exceptions to the rules. So, for example, my co-instructor in Learning How to Learn, Terry Sanowski, and co-author of uh, Uncommon Sense Teaching, they are, he's, he's like super brilliant. Uh, uh, and, and he can grasp all this stuff. It just, I mean, he's got a working memory the size of, uh, you know, like a, he could probably hold it two dozen things in his working memory. And I'm lucky if I can hold one or two, you ask me a question, then ask me a second question at the same time. And I've already forgotten the first question, but at the same time um, we have different ways of learning. And the way I learn is, is also advantageous. And sometimes I can learn in ways that, you know, that are more, it's more difficult for him to learn. So there's race car drivers, there's hiker learners, race cars, Everything can go up by in a blur, but for hikers, they can still get to the finish line, even if it's a lot slower, but they can reach out, they can touch the tree, the, the leaves in the trees, they can hear the birds. It's a very different experience and in some ways far richer and deeper. In fact, for example, Nobel Prize winner Friedrich Hayek uh, said that, and he was a very, very slow learner. But he said that was what gave him his gifts that allowed him to win the Nobel Prize because the fast learners would jump over all these, oh, yeah, of course that's true. And he'd be like, now, really? Is that really true? And he'd start looking into these little crevices and cracks where everybody else was jumping over. But those were important crevices and cracks as, uh, as the Nobel Prize finally revealed. So an educator who knows this, or understands this from reading your book or learns it, what do you do? Because you mentioned word problems can be hard for some learners, but then again, word problems are quite effective, I believe, for a lot of learners. So what do you do if you if you have a room full of different learning brains? Um, so what's done now is that uh, is a lot of scaffolding. And so what do I mean by that? That means breaking information up into smaller bits and pieces. So even those with lesser capacity working memory can grasp the information. Um, so there's uh, so there's approaches that work like this and they can work well for those who maybe have a working memory. A typical working memory capacity is like four pieces of information. A typical classroom might include people with anywhere from five to three um, working memory, you know, pieces of information that they can hold. So, so typical approaches to teaching, which include these scaffolding and, um, and sponge or, uh, or additional material for the faster learners can work well. The problem become, or comes along when you have students that have not a working memory capacity of five, but more like a working memory capacity of 12 or 15 or you know, Johnny von Neumann, who was virtually limitless in his working memory capacity. Uh, what do you do with students like that? Because, for example, Terry Sanowski, he was ahead of the teachers. He knew more than the teachers did. And they felt that he was a problem in the classroom, that he was purposefully being disruptive. And I mean, what would you be if you knew more than the teacher was? He wasn't, he's, he's a very nice man. Uh, but it was it was really quite difficult for him. 
and I, I what is I think problematic in the K-12 educational system, but even in the university level educational system is we often just think that all learners have to go into the same basket. I just got a, an email from this from one woman whose grandson is in third grade and he's already doing like uh, college level math. And, and they're being told, well, I'm sorry, but he can't test out as gifted until he's in fifth grade. So, you know, I mean, this is crazy. You've got this extraordinary child, but our rules say that we can't test him, you know, and uh, it's, I, I don't know why, but we're always talking about the vital importance of inclusivity in our teaching. But then when it comes to actually having students with different learning abilities and approaches, no, they've got to be exactly all exactly the same, you know, in how we teach them and how they must learn. And it, I mean, that's simply not, I mean, being inclusive means if you've got students who've got special abilities and capabilities, whether they're whether these special capabilities can make learning sometimes more difficult or whether they can make that learning more easy, we need to find ways to accommodate these students and not just stick them in the same, you are a square peg, so you must go into this square hole. And that's the way it is, uh, you know, or round hole. And uh, it, it's just kind of odd that, you know, we're talking inclusivity to me, but we're not being truly inclusive of uh, the many diverse students that we have. After the break, how Barb Oakley's own learning journey led her to work on issues of brains and learning. Stay with us. When it comes to your classroom and school communities, are you combining academic goals with a mindset for social and emotional learning? Educators can use Hapara Highlights and Hapara Filter as social and emotional coaching tools. Highlights is a Chrome monitoring tool that develops digital citizenship. With Highlights, a teacher can see what students are browsing and guide them if an open tab isn't learning-focused. The teacher then can send a Highlights direct message that asks the student to be part of the conversation and decision-making process about their own browsing. Teachers can also curate websites for students and gradually give them more browsing independence to help them learn how to self-manage. Hapara Filter is a K-12 web filter powered by AI that helps students practice responsible decision-making in a supportive climate. Within the filter, they can ask their teacher for approval to use a website for learning in the moment. It also keeps students safe by blurring inappropriate images, text, and video, and alerting educators to signs of cyberbullying and self-harm. To learn more, visit hapara.com sel. That's hapara.com sel. Now back to the episode. I, I I sort of can't resist asking about your own learning and how you got into this subject area that you've devoting your time to these days when you're you're saying learning was not something that you're running circles around everybody speed wise. And and so I wonder, like, how, does that is that something driving your curiosity about this topic or is there a connection there? There is. Um how can I put it succinctly? When I was in high school, I, you know, I hated math and science. I mean, I like totally hated it. I didn't see any use for it. Um, and didn't have the knack for math. Uh, at least I didn't think I did. And so I thought, well, 
but I really want to understand the universe. You know, I was all young and naive and all this stuff. And I thought, well, gosh, if I learned another language, I could see the world through a different perspective. And I know all the listeners who are, you know, who speak like two, three, four, seven languages are like, I'm sorry, but, you know, it adds to the world, but it's not like the answer to everything. But for me, I didn't know. And so I just thought I'd love to learn another language really, really well mm. so that I could uh, kind of see the world through two different perspectives. So I couldn't afford to go to college and learn another language that way. So, but I found out if I just join the army, I could learn another language and get paid for it. <laughs> I remember my father going, oh my, well, you're going to learn something, all right. <laughs> you know, not kind of what I think I'm going to be learning. But actually, the Defense Language Institute was, it is one of the best language learning institutions in the world. And I did learn a great deal. Uh, and I learned a great deal from the military as well. What language did you focus on? <laughs> well, believe it or not, Russian. And um, there you go. So it's it it's really just heart wrenching to see what is currently happening. And uh, I know yeah. that there are wow. many Russians who are deeply opposed to what's going on, and I think it's hard for Americans to appreciate how difficult it is to stand up against a totalitarian regime. Mm -hmm. I worked for the communists uh, as a Russian translator back in the early 1980s. And I know what it is like to live under totalitarianism. It's, it's, you say the wrong thing and you disappear. And certainly in Putin's Russia, that's the case. And it will increasingly be the case. So, you know, where we go from here, I, I really... All I can say is my heart, I've spoken in Ukraine. I'll be speaking again for Ukrainian, believe it or not, the, the Ukrainian Academy, uh, uh, Youth Academy of Sciences uh, this Friday. And, uh, and so Ukrainians are so deeply passionate about learning and they're such a wonderful group of people. So my heart's with them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wonder, you know, there's going to be a lot of, I'm sure educational um, disruption because of the war there already is. So it'll be, it'll be quite a, an added tragedy to everything else. But in any case, so I, I, I did learn another language. I learned Russian and it was, um, but learning how to learn effectively just made me wonder all those. So I applied those same ideas of learning that I'd learned at the defense language Institute, like, like practicing and internalizing, you know, like you internalize a verb conjugation so you don't have to think about it. Well, I would do that technique when I was learning about an algorithm, for example, or how to solve a certain problem involving Bayes' theorem or something like that. I would internalize it so I could really pull it swiftly from my mind. And I, and I kept wondering over the years, why would the way I learned a language actually helped me be effective as an adult in learning in math and science when I couldn't learn it as a kid. And now, uh, you know, what, what neuroscience is showing is why, why are these, there are these commonalities between learning in see, seemingly profoundly different areas like learning a language versus learning in math and science 
and there's, you know, and it, it's just, to me, it's just so important to help people understand these new ideas from neuroscience that are often completely antithetical to the way that educational systems are now trying to teach in these important areas. And I mean, some of the ways that are currently being used to teach, for example, in K-12 math are are absolutely antithetical to what we know from neuroscience uh, can help underpin good learning. So I'm, I'm really, I think it's just important for people to know uh, in, in some cases when they're being hornswoggled uh, by their own, you know, by very, very prominent, um, you know, um, leaders in education who are deeply vested in old-fashioned approaches that they call modern, but are in no way, um, you know, indicative of what research, modern research from neuroscience is actually finding. What's an example of that? Of something where it's it's a mis, misfit between what's being recommended and what's the brain science shows us? So, for example, several years ago, I published an op-ed in the New York Times about the importance of practice in mathematics, that practices really leads to effective learning in math. You would have thought that I had just suggested burning down all elementary schools in the United States. You would not believe the pushback. I mean, I cited the research. I showed Exact. I mean, it's it's like a no-brainer. You practice in math just like you practice with learning how to yeah how to speak a language, how to ride a, a roller skates, or whatever you're learning. You know, piece of music. And but somehow, practice in math is thought to kill creativity and kill students' interests in the topic. It's it's just it's. Uh, it would be laughable if it wasn't so sad in how it's disenfranchising, particularly the students who most, who we most want to be effective learners. And it, and it is one of those things where um, it feels like despite a lot of the findings that have come along and are not even necessarily new, that a lot of educators and educational leaders maybe aren't aware of of some of the 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 basics of how the brain learns. It sounds like you're you're saying that's exactly right. For example, I recently spoke at a conference, and one of the the conference leaders put up a multiplication tables, and it was almost like call and response. He put it up obviously to make fun of the idea that children should learn their multiplication tables. And of course, everybody just kind of, as soon as he put it up there and he was like, oh, and then there's the multiplication tables. Everybody knows that, you know, it's stupid to memorize those kinds of things because you can always look it up and everybody's like cheering him on. And it's almost like this easy, free, uh, a minister who already knows that they're going to get this happy response from the audience and that's why they do that. It's like this feedback mechanism. But as I say, when I, you know, I'm not here to tell you what you want to hear. I'm here to tell you what you need to hear. And you need to have the neural structure that allows you to understand the multiplication tables. And you don't get that neural structure by looking at it or looking it up on a calculator. You get it by internalizing those structures. And uh, and so, you know, I, I don't know, it, 
sometimes I'm just really taken aback with what is taught at, you know, at some of these major conferences, because it's, it's what people want to hear. It's what teachers want to hear, but it's not what teachers need to hear and what, and also what research is actually revealing. So this memorization of the times tables, it gives you a tool in your brain to process other information later. Exactly right. So you think, oh, you're just memorizing five times two is 10. That is rote. You don't understand what is behind what is going on. But actually, your brain is totally putting together the patterns as you begin to as you begin to say oh, five times two is 10, but five times three is 15. Whether you are aware of it or not, you're actually gaining a subconscious intuition about the relationship between those numbers. And in fact, through procedural learning through the basal ganglia, which is how this kind of interleaved uh, understanding of patterns, such as the patterns of your native language and the patterns of math, of the multiplication tables, that, that understanding grows gradually through lots of practice with those with you know, with like the multiplication tables. It's not just memorization. You are internalizing while you're working with those multiplication tables. You know, since we've talked a, a good bit about working memory, um, I I noticed that you, you're often coming up with these playful metaphors um, in your book and, and elsewhere. So I have to ask, how is working memory like a juggling octopus? I think you also, I think you say. <laughs> I think it's really the best metaphor for working memory. If if you look at George Miller's original work uh, with working memory, and of course he was extraordinary, and he said it's the magical number seven. Uh, we can hold seven items in our working memory. And Nelson Cowan, who's currently, I think, one of the uh, best researchers in working memory is, he says, no, it's probably more like four. And it may, there's evidence, it may be something like two. I know for me, if I haven't had my coffee in the morning, it's like, you know, I don't even have a working memory at all. Uh, uh, but phone numbers, phone numbers are seven digits in, in the US. So, right. It's like something like that. Some, I think it's seven. <laughs> but so it was originally thought that seven was what we could hold seven items of information. But it turns out that we actually can hold seven because we group numbers together. So you might have a first group as three, four, seven, and then that second part of the phone number is two, nine, seven, three. So three, four, seven, two, nine, seven, three. You're holding them in two groups in your mind. And notice there's not a third group. Uh, in fact, I was very lucky that I could remember what I just said as far as this. But really, most people can hold around four pieces of information. Uh, if I'm speaking for an academic audience, they, and I, I do tests sometimes, like I can, I can give them a working memory test. Uh, and typically in an academic audience, it's a working memory capacity of around five, something like that. But, um, you know, I have lesser capacity. And so what George Miller did was he said, let's think of them as slots in working memory. You know, you've got these slots that you can put information in. But the reality is slots can't reach anywhere. And working memory, what it actually is doing is we don't really know how it's doing it, but it is making these connections with long-term memory. 
So, you know, slots can't reach into long-term memory, but an octopus's arms can reach into long-term memory. So I like to think of it as it's not really an octopus. It's more like a quadrupus, you know, that's got those four arms, but it can reach into long-term memory and hold maybe four or five pieces of information. But that also, that visualization can also tell you, oh, wait, it's holding one piece of information with one arm, but it's got three other arms that are free. So, you know, so it's not a busy uh, octopus. If if you've already created sets of links in long-term memory because you've learned something, then like backing up a car, you know, you can just think, oh, I want to back up a car. And with with one octopus arm, you can reach in and grab that massive set of links that is how you back up a car. And uh, and then you can back up a car really easily while you're even thinking about, is my seatbelt fastened and what's that song on the, on the radio and so forth. But when you're first learning something, when you're trying to back up that car, you need all four or five or whatever arms of your attentional octopus you've got because you're, you're, you're like, am I looking in this mirror or that mirror or, what, you know, where do I look? What do I do? And only after you practice do you create those sets of links in long-term memory that you can just think one thought, I want to back up a car, and then be able to go off and do that. But it's kind of like that when you're learning, you know, how to speak a language. Once you've practiced enough, you can just draw a set of links up and say, spit out a word in a foreign language or a sentence in a foreign language without having to think about it. But uh, until you practice quite a bit, that can be a very difficult thing to do. Yeah. And so you are somebody who has taught a lot of people this information in your um, popular MOOC, um, Learning How to Learn, that we talked to you about last time on this podcast. And since then, you have another MOOC, and it's I understand you have part two coming out on common sense teaching, right? For the same as your book. It, it is a, um, a set of titles that's perfect for the working memory capacity impaired person like me. It's like the same. Uncommon Sense Teaching is the book. And also the title of the specialization, which is coming out from Coursera. So we've, uh, so the first um, massive open online course or MOOC is already available. That's called, no surprise, Uncommon Sense Teaching. And now it's Uncommon Sense Teaching Part Two. Uh, is related to, oh, it's related to so many different things, um, but like neurodiversity, as we've been discussing here. Also issues such as, um, you know, like we get all this training to prevent bullying and prevent, uh, let's just say, uh, malfeasance or nasty shenanigans on the part of people who just say and do really awful things. So we do lots of training to prevent that. And of course, it doesn't really do a lot. I mean, because it turns out that there are still people doing that sort of thing. So then what do the trainers do? They come back and say, well, you know, you just didn't train hard enough. And by the way, you got to pay me a lot more money because you got to train a lot more. And no matter how much you spend on this training, it just doesn't seem to move the needle. Why is that? And are there better ways? Well, yes, there are better ways. And a part of the reason it doesn't move the needle is because um, is explained by a story in the Chronicle of Higher Education from 1995 
uh, written by Robert Coles, Cole, who was a professor at Harvard. And he said, you know, this woman came in, she was a student here at Harvard, and she was getting through Harvard by cleaning um, dormitories. And the one thing was that there was this guy that she was cleaning his room. She had to, it was part of it. And she had taken morality courses with him. And it seems he had aced these morality courses. But whenever she'd clean his room, he would proposition her in the rudest, crudest, nastiest way possible. So here's this Harvard standout. He was a pre-med student, already a successful journalist, and clearly a, a really suboptimal human being. So he wasn't, he was, but he was acing all his morality and ethics courses. So, I mean, what's the deal there? I mean, and she pointed out, you know, we've got politicians and um, poets, famous novelists, uh, scientists, and so forth, who are all trained in morality and all go on to support really awful, terrible regimes. And so what's the deal here? And she eventually left Harvard, calling it fancy, phony Cambridge. And the deal is that there are some people who are, um, I mean, narcissist is one of the most deeply heritable of all um, disorders. And narcissists can, <laughs> they can justify almost anything because it's all to benefit them, right? They're sort of neurally inclined, hardwired to think that anything that benefits them is good. So that means that if they do something really nasty to others, it's still good if it benefits them. It's hard to kind of take on that sort of thinking. But um, when we do our training, we have uh, a, you know, not insignificant number of students who are just like my, you know, who I call Michael at Harvard, who listen, they get great grades, they seem perfect, and then they go off and they bully and they do other terrible things. And that's just the way of things. And the best way forward really is to help students learn to uh, to also protect themselves. You know, we're not always going to be able to be there to fend, you know, for to fend for people. So like right now, what we often do, we, we teach with cooperative learning, for example, that's, that's huge in education. And we, we, feel that it's really important to teach our students to react empathetically to one another. Well, what is this really doing? The ones who are already empathetic are going to take this message in, internalize it, and become even more empathetic. And that's going to set the road for them in later life to be codependent. Like, you know, they've got to be helpful for others. That's, and they have to be understanding and empathetic no matter what other people may do. In fact, no matter how others may take advantage of them. I think it's really important when we're doing teamwork type activities, as we discuss in the book and the MOOC on common sense teaching, you don't just teach students to be empathetic. You also must teach them how to set limits and boundaries of what they will accept and teach them how to say no, because learning how to say no is going to help them in so many ways, particularly when it comes to things like drug abuse and so forth. Hmm. So it's a different way to think about um, 
teaching for group projects or for collaboration. Right. And I think that group projects and collaboration can be enormously helpful. But I I also must refer to an op-ed in the New York Times written by an eighth grader, Veronique Mintz. And she said that prior to COVID, 80% of her her classroom experiences were involved in in collaborative learning. Basically, the teacher would just stick them together in groups time after time after time. And, and she, the teachers didn't know how to control the groups. And they didn't, and, and she wasn't getting anything out of it. In fact, she was starting to hate school. And she loved the fact that she was forced to go into online learning with COVID because then she didn't have to put up with the, all the, the kids who the teachers were unable to control. So, um, yeah, so there are actually surprising advantages in ways we often don't consider uh, about uh, the effectiveness of online learning. But also, I think we do need to take a step back sometimes and really uh, think about, I mean, collaborative and cooperative learning is is important, uh, but it also has drawbacks. And if it becomes too much of a fad where social learning is thought to be the answer to everything, that that can create real problems for students as well. Hmm, that's so interesting. And so when is this new MOOC coming out? It will be coming out April 15th. Thank you for, for sharing your latest. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's always a, a pleasure speaking with you. This has been the EdSurge podcast. Every week, we are here doing our thing, tracking how education is changing. And in fact, we have hit a milestone We've done more than 400 episodes of the Ed Search podcast. This is actually 401. Um, We had a bonus issue that hit us over 400 last week. If you want to help us celebrate, please take a minute to give us a five-star rating or leave a review about the Ed Search podcast wherever you listen. Or sign up for the Ed Search podcast newsletter by going to edsearch.com and clicking on the word newsletter at the top right. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young, And you can find me on Twitter at J.R. Young. Music this episode is by Rowan Jane. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.